0: The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. I am probably not the one you expected to be standing here right now. So what you're looking at is the end product of a long series of dominoes that went off this week. So uh, Pastor Vince is out of town, he is visiting some of his family that lives out west, and so Pastor Jordan was supposed to preach today on Mark 6. On Friday afternoon or evening, he came down with a fever over 100 degrees and was sick and could not do it. So then I'm the next guy in line. So, um, I I get to have the privilege of of speaking today, and uh, Jordan has informed me that I am not allowed to talk about Mark 6 because, and I quote, he's already prepared that sermon and is going to preach it next week. So, with that said, we will not be in Mark today. We are going to be in the book of Isaiah in the Hebrew Bible. So, go a little bit further back. Uh, The words will be on the screen for those of you. Who, have a, uh, who do not have your copy of your Bible with you today. Um, if uh, you would like a Bible, we do provide them, so please see us in the Connections uh, room uh, after the service, and we will be able to give you one as well. So I'm going to be reading out of the English Standard Version of the Bible, and that's the words that are going to be on the screen, and I'm going to try not to talk too fast so that they can keep up with me on the screen. Okay, so so our passage is Isaiah chapter 59, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit Uh, justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch the eggs of the adder. They spin the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil. They are swift to to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice to their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace." Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon, as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words, justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes his, himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered what, that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of, vi- of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment, so that they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing river, like the wind of the Lord, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion and to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. But... And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Dearest Father, we thank you that you have given us this word. And while this is an uncomfortable sermon for us to hear today, we pray that in our discomfort that you will bring us peace And healing and restoration, let your name and your gospel be proclaimed from the east as far as it is to the west. In your name we pray, amen. So for those of you who like to have a title to the message, I'm going to adapt Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7. So the original verse is, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The the title of this message is, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of righteousness. So, the question we have to ask ourselves when we come to a passage like this in the book of Isaiah is how does it connect to us in our modern world after the cross? It's very easy for us to come to services like this every week to sing our songs of praise, our songs of adoration, our songs of thanksgiving for God and for his salvation. And it is more difficult for us to put ourselves in the place of this passage, which is not quite so happy. The issue is that in our culture and our world today, we have forgotten the bad news while we remember the good news. We remember only half of the gospel... And so I'm going to take the opportunity today to push pause on the book of Mark and to go look at one of these background passages to where we're at in the gospel of Mark. So if you do your cross-references and you look up what's happening in chapters 5 and 6 of Mark, you come to a passage like this in Isaiah 59. And this passage is the background of what the gospels and the gospel are trying to tell us from the time of Jesus till today. is that we have a problem, Houston. Right? We have a problem that we cannot solve. So, we're going to ask a couple of questions and we're going to look at some painful answers before we get to the hopeful part at the end. Okay? So, My one cultural reference in the sermon is going to now come now. So if we go back to the year 1999-2000, there was a movie called The Matrix. And in that movie, the context was is that everything that these people lived, their entire lives, was an illusion, Right? That they were trapped within the computer program of the Matrix, which was deceiving them that the world was one way when it was completely different. And very early in the movie, we meet a character who we come to know as Neo, and he is the chosen one, we find out. But his role at the beginning of the movie is to help us embrace the destruction of the illusion of reality. Right? So he's pulled out of the Matrix by these people, and he is shown the truth. And the truth is uncomfortable. Right? And he is, And one of the parts of the truth that I'm going to connect here is that Morpheus says to Neo, we don't know who struck first in the war, whether it was us or them. But we know that it was us that scorched the sky. It was us that created the world of reality for which the Matrix is an illusion. Those of you who have not seen the movie, the world of reality is a desolate, apocalyptic landscape. The sun is blotted out and there is no light. All life on the planet is dead except for the humans who are kept alive to provide power to the machines. There are no plants. There are no animals. There is nothing... We do not know who struck first, but it was us who scorched the sky. So in verses 1 and 2 of our passage, we read, "Behold the Lord's hand is not shortened and that it is not it cannot save, or his he- ear dull that it cannot hear, for your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you that he does not hear." What has happened in our world? The answer is, we have separated ourselves from God. Now the fancy term for that in the Bible is sin. And the issue is that the word sin covers up a lot of different types of separations. We see all of those words occur in our passage. The words like iniquity, like wickedness, transgression. We also put under this word sin not only what we do, which I'm going to call sins, but, and this is the uncomfortable part, who we are apart from God, which is sin. We are sinned relative to God. Even before you do anything, As a small child or each day, you are already separated from God. And that separation is both the result of your sins and the cause of those sins. Right? We go back to the beginning, to Genesis chapters 1 through 3. God builds a beautiful world and fills it with all sorts of beautiful creations, but it is the humans who begin the destruction of all of that beauty. God had one simple rule. Everything in the garden is for you. Eat of anything you want except for this thing. This thing is mine. It is not for you. I have an 18-month-old son. Let me tell you about the sin nature. Because you tell anything to an 18-month-old, and the opposite is obviously true. Don't touch that. Don't eat that. Don't do that, right? They're going to look you dead in the eye and do it anyway. And that, my friends, is what we do every day apart from God, right? We look him dead in the eyes and we said, you said not to, but I'm going to anyway. We are the the one who then has to pursue us to restore our connection to him. I think it's interesting that the image of sin in Genesis is the image of fruit, right? The fruit is alive as long as it's connected to the tree. As soon as you pluck it, it begins to die. As soon as it's separated from the source of its life, it dies. It looks good for a while. It looks fresh, ripe, ready to eat for a long time, But my friends, it is dying, and so are we. From the day we are born, we begin to die. We die moment by moment because we are no longer separated with the source of life. This sermon is only going to be about 70% sinners in the hands of the angry All right. The second question occurs in verses 3 through 8. What have we done? And the answer is sins, evil, transgression, whatever word you prefer, right? So let's go and read that again. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on even, he please, they speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They're, they spin the, the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and the, from one that is crushed a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to, pers- to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, desolation and destruction are in, their hi- are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their path. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace." So we have done all of these things as a consequence of our separation from God. So the problem is, and that's why I like the idea of the matrix, it's like we're not really sure where it began, right? So there's a lingering theological question, was the sin the eating of the fruit or was the sin the decision to eat the fruit, right? When when did the first sin happen, right? What was the chicken and what was the egg? And the answer is it doesn't really matter anymore, right? Right? We are already born in a world so completely corrupted with sin, that thing, that sin doesn't try to corrupt, right? And and here we see uh, the negative reflection of what verse 1 has. As God sits capable of saving, capable of hearing, capable of restoring, we do everything everything to stop him. It's not that we just don't want him, we are actively opposing him at every turn. Right? If we jump down to verse 6, we we see an interesting uh, interesting parallel, particularly in connection to that Genesis story of the first sin, and, and the idea that when they ate the fruit... Adam and Eve knew for the first time what it was like to be evil. And they were afraid and they were ashamed and they decided to cover themselves. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to make a coat out of leaves. It doesn't work very well, okay? Well, here, Isaiah changes it up. He says, you're not even trying to cover yourself with leaves. You're trying to cover yourself with spider webs. Talk about the emperor's new clothes, right? Everyone can see what you're doing. You're not hiding it. There is no hiding here. Now, what is it that you are trying to hide and failing miserably at? And that, that occurs in verses sort of up in 4 and also in 7. It's that in your daily life, you do not pursue righteousness. You pursue the opposite. Transgression, sin, injustice, right? It, it says that you run to evil. And you're thinking, now, Andrew, I'm not some sort of serial killer murderer, right? I'm not doing evil all the time. Really? You sure about that? Because from God's perspective, you just look like you're trying to put leaves or spider webs on top of the things that you do. This is remarkably uncomfortable for us who live in the United States and we think that we are good people in a great nation and that we are the paragon of of truth and justice, apple pie, and grandma's cooking, right? Like, we we see ourselves in the most positive light. But the mirror that God is putting up for us is not from the funhouse of our own imaginary illusions. It is showing us in stark contrast who we are. Now, that part in verse 7, their feet run to evil harkens back to the book of Proverbs. And the first reference is at the very beginning. So I, I used verses 1, verse, chapter 1, verse 7 as my title. If you go to verse, chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, it continues with almost the exact same wording as we see here in Isaiah. But I'm going to read Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. And it says, There are six things that God hates. Nay, seven things that are an abomination to him. Now, let's just pause here, right? We like to think of God as this sort of celestial teddy bear, right? Who's just all warm, some sort of like loving grandfatherly figure who's going to hand out candy to us and pet us on the head and tell us that we're nice boys and girls. But God hates certain things. They hates them so much, the word abomination there could also sort of connotates the idea that it makes him want to throw up. Okay? So this is what God throws up over. Haughty eyes. That's a problem in our culture, obsessed with beauty and fashion and how we appear to people. Oh, but we've already started, that's just number one. Let's continue. A lying tongue. In an age in which truth is up for debate, in which facts only are facts if we choose them to be, in a time in which we can trust no one to tell us truth, that's two, okay, let's continue, and hands that shed innocent blood. Okay, we might be good on that one, right, we might be okay with that one. But we really need to seriously contemplate how we are also culpable for the things that we live in. If I wasn't political already, let's go ahead and just go there, right? We have a justice system that is patently, day after day, revealing to us that it is an injustice system, right? Bloom in our nation. And that problem is sin. Right? The root of the problem is who has the guns and who doesn't have the guns, who's doing the crimes and what those crimes are. The problem in our nation, ultimately, friends, is sin. And we're never going to fix it if we don't fix the sin problem. Okay? So we're still, we're still eight, zero for three right now. Okay. A heart that des- devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil... A false witness that breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. I'm not gonna hit him all the time because I gotta get this and we gotta get to lunch. Okay? We could be here for about three hours. So I'm just gonna jump to number seven, let you deal with, with uh, four through six. One who sows discord among brothers. We are less than a hundred days away from the most important election of our lifetimes. We are in a time in which we have probably gone for more than a decade with a functioning government in any form or fashion. I feel like there is more coordination and cooperation in the preschool class downstairs than I am seeing in Washington, DC. And that's for both parties, right? Instead of pursuing in a time of pandemic, And economic consequences of that pandemic, of international discord, of times in which we are trying to figure out what the future is going to look like in this horrible year of 2020, instead of coming together, every aspect of our society is trying to tear us apart. And we make God want to throw up. Told you it was going to get, it's going to get good in a second. We got to come around the bend first. Okay. Now, coming back to Isaiah 59, we we read there in verse 8, their ways do not know the way of peace. They have have no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. The apostle Paul, when he writes the book to the Romans, to discuss what it looks like to sin. And this is where I guess we can comfort ourselves a little bit. We are no different than the Romans were 2,000 years ago. The book book to the Romans is written to a congregation tearing itself apart over ethnic and cultural lines. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Right? And Paul is pleading with them for 11 chapters in the book to see that y'all all wrong... And only Jesus is righteous. Because the beginning of the book is this debate that occurs between the two groups. Between those that come from a Jewish background and those that come from the not Jewish background, right? Are fighting with each other, trying to figure out who of them has sinned less. And Paul's like, sin's less? Sin's less? Let me just run you down the checklist of how much you sin and then we'll figure out who sins less. Right, that's where this comes up. And that's how I want us to feel the discomfort here in this passage. When Jesus enters into history and starts to proclaim his gospel, he doesn't pat us on the head and hand out butterscotch. Butterscotch. He braids a whip and starts flipping tables and messes everything up, okay? Because guess what? The world was already messed up before he got here. We just were deceiving ourselves, living in the matrix of our self-righteousness, thinking that we were okay. So our third question is, what is our current state? So what have we done and where are we now? And that is described by the word lost. Now, this again is the difficult part about being a Christian in America. No one thinks they're lost. No one thinks that they need to be saved. They think that they're okay. They've bought the lie of the American dream that if I have a white picket fence and a house on the right cul-de-sac in a good school district, I don't need Jesus. Jesus. That if I live a life that's morally okay, and I just lie maybe on my taxes, that when I get to the other side, Jesus is going to be like, meh, it's close enough. No. The answer is no. His number is no. His sign is no. The, an- the answer is no, Right? Verses 9 through 15 give us a a beautiful picture of what we are. In the ancient world, blindness was very well known. There were all sorts of diseases that would cause you to go blind. right? Nutritional deficiencies, infections, poor hygienic scenarios, when you went to a doctor to get treated for things, people who were blind. And so blindness was not considered a defect, or a deficit as much as it was a disability, There wasn't something necessarily wrong with you. There was something that was impairing you. So in that context, Isaiah, and then later Jesus, and later Paul, see us as blind people looking for the wall in a room. We're stumbling around, and we think we're okay. It's fine. It's fine. I'm not going to tell anyone. I doesn't bother anyone. I just, if I just find where the wall is, I'll know where I'm at, and no one will notice me stumbling about. We all see you. And most importantly, God sees you, right? So again... Blindness was not necessarily seen as in and of itself a bad thing. It was a, cons- it was a consequence of something that had happened to you or something that you had done that now impairs you in life. You know, and the Bible never uses blindness, with the exception of a few times in which God specifically says it, as the punishment of sin. So, so it's very interesting that in the, book, in the Gospel of John, for instance, there's a man who was born blind, and the question comes up to Jesus, was he born blind because of what he did or what his parents did? And this may be the first time that that was used as an example of something being morally deficit in a person, right? So that we, we, if we get there, then you should ask him about that. Anyway, so... Uh, uh, But but blindness was not a punishment for sin. It was a consequence of sin, or here, an analogy to sin. Okay? What is happening? The person is stumbling around where everyone can see that they're stumbling, and most importantly, God can see their stumbling, but particularly, they are in danger. Their blindness not only impairs them, it endangers them. Right? They're, like a, they're, they're not just a blind person looking for the wall. They're a blind person trying to walk, walk across the street. They're in danger. You're in danger. We are all in danger without God. Left to our own devices, we're trying to convince ourselves that we are okay. We're good enough. And strong enough to make it to the other side. Meanwhile, the bus is coming to hit us. Okay? Now, in verse 15, we see the turn. We go from, truth is lacking, he who departs from evil has made himself prey. He has put himself in danger it says, the Lord saw this and it displeased him that there was no justice. The first thing that God has done is to repay. This is where it's going to get a little bit uncomfortable. We like to sing the song, your goodness is running after me. But the first way that God's goodness runs after us is to repay us, for what we have done, right? It feels good after the cross for his goodness to be pursuing us, but when we are still in our sin, his goodness pursuing us is not such a good thing because he is coming to reap vengeance on all of us. Again, we forget so often that God's mercy is attribute because His justice didn't trump it. We are all in a bad way if there was no mercy. We are going to get it bad if there is no mercy. What's interesting about this is that that verse, in verse 17, I'm going to point that one out particularly, he who puts on righteousness, he puts on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. We hear the echo of that in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness, over the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm." to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. The first attribute of the armor of God is offensive, right? It's armor for a battle, and that battle is against everything evil in this world and I'm sorry to tell you yet again that includes you apart from God. God is not some squishy teddy bear who's going to hug you. He's a warrior about to repay everyone who is threatening to take his kingdom. Breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head, he has put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. The thing that was confusing when Jesus came was that he didn't do this. Throughout the Gospels, we, we see over and over again the, the people sort of coming up to the disciples or coming up to Jesus and says, saying, Is now the time of vengeance? And the problem was, is they didn't understand what that meant. See, they thought that Jesus was going to braid that whip and flip over tables, starting in the temple, and he was going to start a revolution that was going to violently throw down the Roman Empire and finally give Israel their kingdom again. But they forgot to read their Bible, because every time the whip is braided in the Hebrew part of the Bible, it comes against Israel and not their enemies. In the book of Ezekiel, God is abhorrent at what they're doing in the temple. It has gotten so bad that they are offering sacrifices to pagan gods in his own temple, so he mounts up like a warrior and kills everyone, including those who thought they were righteous. Right? And and, and the, the image of the Bible's idea of God's coming is one that there will be so much bloodshed it will flow like a river across the landscape. And He's coming one day. Right, that, that's the tension that they were feeling because when Jesus comes, he's nice and meek and loving and babies and the children are coming to him. And he's welcoming them and he's talking about peace. He's talking about redemption. He's talking about these things. And they thought, oh, well, I guess we just didn't really understand those passages about like the vengeance thing. And he's like, no, 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 that's for later. I'm giving you the way out of that consequence. The problem that the Pharisees and the disciples and the religious leaders and the ones, and even us today have is that we think we're on the winning side, no, my friends, we're the ones for whom the sword is coming, apart from mercy. Apart from mercy, our, con- our wages are vengeance. Our wages are punishment. Our wages are separation from God. Remember, you are the fruit from the tree. You look good, but you're dying every day. Finally, we come to the end of the passage, verses 20 and 21. Now, some background here. It's very interesting that this is the passage that is being contemplated over these next few days within modern Judaism. So, I don't sure if you're aware, but yesterday was the first day of Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the Jewish New Year. And many of my friends who are Jewish are hopeful that, you know, that it wasn't 2020 that was the problem. It was 5780, the Jewish calendar's year, and now that we're in a new year, things will be better. Right? But the thing with Rosh Hashanah is it begins about a 10 day period, it's 10 days in the calendar, called the Days of Awe. The Days of Awe are when you're supposed to contemplate everything you had done in the previous year because God is about to settle his account, right? See, it's the fiscal year for God, and we got to balance the books that are owed that have to be repaid. Now you know what the awe is about. For the next 10 days, Jews will contemplate their life, confess their sins, And on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, they will plead for God's mercy and redemption. But here's the interesting thing that we as Christians do. We don't do any of that. We don't have days of awe. We don't have a Day of Atonement in which we come and fast for the whole day and plead for God to forgive us. Because we believe we have already been forgiven. You, you, but what he was saying is like, you just assume that's true. How do you know? You see, the, the choices are that the, it's either repayment or redemption. And, and, and I use those two words even though they are sort of synonymous Because there's two ways that you're going to pay it back. The debt, the books are going to get closed one day. The debts are going to get paid. And you have to ask yourself whether you have the cash reserves to pay off that debt with God. Are all of your good deeds good enough to pay back all of that sin? And more important for me is that it's not that you're good enough to pay back your sins... It's that you're good enough to reconnect you with the source of life and undo your sin. No one is good enough to plug themselves back into the source of life. You've already been disconnected. You've already begun dying. You're already not a part of his kingdom. And nothing you can do is going to change that fact. Only he can. So so there can be, ultimately, there can be no redemption apart from God. There can only be the attempts at repayment. A redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. That is, those who have turned from transgression. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart. So that phrase, will not depart, occurs two other places in the Hebrew Bible. The first one is in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, which which in that context is Jacob blessing his 12 sons, and he says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people's. So the Messiah, embodied within Judah here, is going to rule everything. Tribute, by the way, is what you pay to your Lord so that he doesn't kill you. Right? You're paying off your life in the ancient world. And to him will come the obedience of all the peoples. And again, we see this in the New Testament, One day, all will bend their knee and declare with their tongue that Jesus is Lord and above all other names. But some of them won't like that they have to say that. Jesus says, there are many of you who say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not know you? And he says, depart from me. I don't know who you are. You're not part of my kingdom. There, There will be a time in which God will reap repayment. He will close his books, he will settle the score, and all will be under obedience to him. The descriptions of hell and heaven are very weird in the Bible. I don't know if you've read them, you're like, okay, well, how does that work? But ultimately the end of the world there will not be two kingdoms the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness the kingdom of god and the kingdom of evil there will be one kingdom and all will be in it but not all will be happy that they're in it and that i think is what hell will be like hell will be the millions billions of people who don't want god to be god and they're stuck with him forever. And heaven is those that rejoice that mercy has come, that they have been reconnected with their creator, that they have been restored, atoned, and redeemed from all of that. So my question to you is, are you redeemed? Have you pleaded with God to forgive you for all of the sins and the sin that you are so that he will show you his mercy the other parallel of shall not depart occurs within Joshua chapter 1 verse 8 I had to find it sorry this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth but you shall meditate on it day and night. So how, Andrew, do I know if I am redeemed? Back to Isaiah 59, verse 21. My spirit that is upon you, the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, we believe doctrinally, theologically, to be the third person of the triune Godhead, in a big fancy way, If he is dwelling in you and upon you, you are redeemed. And the flip side is also true that my words that I have put in your mouth are in you and with you, right? This is how you ultimately know if you were redeemed. Are you following this by the power of the spirit in your life? Because if you're not, then you're not. Right? That's how you know. You know because you know that you're connected. Right? There is assurance that you have been saved. Now, this may be a longer conversation that we need to have. But this is the thing that we are going to now begin to contemplate as we close today's service. We're going to begin the process of reflection today in what I'm going to make one of our days of awe in which we think about our place in the universe. As we think about what we, where we are in the celestial economy of redemption. Okay. So, there are again two sides. There is the sign in which we have all been born. The kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of deception, the kingdom of illusion, the kingdom of sin. We were born in that as the consequence of our humanity. It isn't a necessary part of our humanity, but it's a part of our humanity like. Uh, I just lost my, I was trying to do a beautiful little phrase there and I lost it. Anyway, uh, it, it's part of our natural community. There we go, I got it. I was doing an in thing, sorry. Um, so it's not necessarily who we are because Jesus is also human. And we, I'm going to talk about that. Why did Jesus become human? Jesus had to become human because he had to reconnect humanity and God, right? See, we would love it for God to just sort of sweep it all under the rug. You know what I'm saying? Just be like, eh, that's okay. That's hmm. Forgiveness for everybody. That's not how it, got, that's not how it works. It, it appears that even God has to do something to reconnect us. So God becomes human in the person of Jesus, bringing together humanity and divinity in one person. And then through the act of redemption, he brings other humans into connection with him. The Bible describes the ultimate source of salvation as union with Christ, being one with him. It uses the image of marriage, the image of family, of parent and child, the image of connection between us and Christ through the Spirit. So I'm going to ask you has that happened? Because if it hasn't, you're still over here in the kingdom of darkness and sin. If it has, then you have entered into the kingdom of light and redemption. Remember, in the end, there will be only one kingdom. The kingdom of light will repay with vengeance the kingdom of darkness. And the Bible describes it at the end of Revelation as that, everything is light, that, there is, that it's always daytime, there is no night, every, every aspect of darkness that was in our world has been completely eradicated and extinguished by the presence of God. But that doesn't mean we all get to be reconnected in the end. Despite this beautiful offer of redemption, there will still be people who are separated from God in the end. And I pray and I plead that you are not one of them. Redemption is being offered to you now. That's why Jesus came as the meek lamb first. He wants you to be reconnected to him. Accept it. You, you have to connect back into him through your pleading for mercy. As I pray, I'm going to ask the team to come up and we'll uh, do um, our communion. Dearest Father, we thank you that you are a God of justice and truth. And when we are deceived and when we are misled and when we are in denial of those things, you pursue us in truth and in goodness. We thank you, Jesus, that you are... The God-man of mercy, that you bridged the gap that we formed to reconnect us in with you, that you lived that perfect life and died that sacrificial death, that we might be redeemed and reconnected with you. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you bring us your word day by day, hour by hour, that you dwell in us and with us if we are your people, that you may know that we are yours and that we may know that we are yours. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.